Heavenly Father, we long for that day when Christ shall return. Oh, Lord, come even now, we pray. And when that day comes, Lord, we will be among the, the throng that uh, declares his praise and his glory. That he is our not only our Lord, but he is <clears throat> the Lord of lords and King of kings. And is he whom we bow down and worship and follow. It is he who is our Lord and Savior who brings us salvation forevermore because he is our King and priest forevermore. We thank you and praise you for Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that you provide for us in him. And we thank you, Lord, for your book, the Bible, that records for us the words of Christ and the truths of Christ that we might learn more about our Savior and your plan for our world. We thank you that we can open your book now and pray that your spirit continue guiding us to, uh, to understand your truths, to understand your ways. And though uh, it is uh, difficult, maybe difficult to understand, to even grasp, Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us and be our teacher today and draw us into your presence that we might grow as in a greater love of you. Thank you, Father, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. And uh, take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn with me to the book of Hebrews again. really appreciate uh, Pastor Roger preaching over the last three weeks and uh, finishing his uh, series on the one another's. That's such an important series. We should uh, put that on a CD uh, or something like that. Make it require listening for every member that joins the church. Not you new members today, though. By the way, I hope you'll come to our church family meeting today. We're, uh, one of the highlights of the church family meeting is that we have new members. So we're going to have a couple, three new members, I think, added to the congregation or uh, this morning, or this afternoon, I'd rather. All right, Hebrews chapter 7 is actually where we're going to be, Hebrews chapter 7. So we dive right back in. Of course, it's, it's not too far removed from what we looked at last week in Psalm 110. Uh, <clears throat> that is the perfect, uh, that passage, uh, particularly verse 4, is what uh, gives us, uh, it overshadows really the, this message here about uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek. <clears throat> well, when you and I encounter trials in life, uh, sometimes they're easy, we can endure them for a little while, but the hardest trials and the difficult, the challenging trials, they get challenging is when, when there seems to be no apparent end in sight for the trials that we face, right? Uh, perhaps it's uh, maybe uh, hoping to have children. And, uh, and you just, you know, month after month, you, you're trying to have children. And it just seems never, never to, never to come. The child, uh, God doesn't give a child. And you kind of just wonder, Lord, how long? Or perhaps it's, it's work. Some of you are looking for work, I know. And, and you've been applying to different places. You've applied to a lot of places. And you, and you still don't, don't get any, job. you haven't got a single job offer. And you're wondering, Lord, how long? Or even more, on a more serious level, some of us may get a, a diagnosis from our doctor where um, we find out we have some disease, an illness that uh, perhaps is even terminal, and, or it's something that you, there's nothing we can do about it. It's, it's something that we're going to have to accept and live with uh, until the Lord calls us home. And uh, it's in those moments when we face those kinds of trials uh, that we, we tend to ask and we respond as the psalmist does. And all across the psalm, we ask that question, how long? How long, O oh Lord? 
As we read in our call to worship, Psalm 13:1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or like in Psalm 35, verse 17, Lord, how long will you look on? Or Psalm 74, 10, How long, O God, will the adversary revile? How long will I endure this illness? How long will I be without a job? How long will I remain single or childless? How long will my child rebel? How long must I endure this suffering? All these are questions of various kinds that all of us in in different times may ask ourselves of and ask of the Lord. And that's the right, and that is an appropriate response. It's not necessarily complaining, but it's a, it's a crying out to the Lord in the midst of our trials. It's like children when we hurt and we're wondering, we, we've been pain, we cry out to our parents. And so as <clears throat> children of God, when we go through trials, we go through struggles, we should cry out to our God and our Father, even if it is, how long, O Lord? I don't know if I can endure this any longer. The Hebrew Christian recipients of this letter were likely asking the same kind of questions of the Lord. In the face of increasing persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ, they knew things were getting worse. They didn't know how much worse it would get. But they knew that it was getting worse. And for them, they were being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They were easy pickings by the Roman government. Their faith in Jesus was, in a sense, was, wasn't working out maybe the way they expected. It was getting tough to be a Christian. They were slowly being tempted and wondering in their minds, did we make the right choice to leave our Old Testament Jewish ways and turn towards and follow Jesus as the Messiah. They were perhaps being even tempted to return back to the safety or relative security of Old Testament temple worship. And so throughout this letter, the author has been warning the recipients to simply to not fall away, to not drift away, to not turn away, because Jesus Christ is better than anything they would turn back to. As great as the angels, Moses, the law, the priests, sacrifices were in their time, Jesus Christ is greater than all of them together. For they all point to Jesus. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 15, the author has been making his case that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. And we're going to see all the way through chapter 10 these different aspects of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system where Jesus Christ is better than that to encourage them not to turn away. In Hebrews 4.15, it began with this, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. See, not only does Jesus Christ, our king and our priest, sympathize with us, but he is superior in his rank. As we've later on learned in chapter 5, verse 6 and 10, we learn that Jesus is of of a different order of priesthood. He's of the order of Melchizedek. That would be a quote from Psalm 110, 110 verse 4. This obscure reference, of course, uh, to this priest king named Melchizedek is taken all the way from, back from Genesis 14. 
And it's obscure because, and you get a sense that it's obscure even to these readers because the author retells the the details of Melchizedek's life in these verses, whereas in many of the other uh, uh, Old Testament passages, he didn't have to share much Old Testament detail at all. And so, at the end of chapter 6, which we looked at last time, the author returned once again to this theme of Jesus as the as a, uh, as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He talks about the hope that every Christian has. In the face of trials and tribulations, we have a hope, a hope that is sure and steady. It's an anchor of our soul, verse 19. It's, it's anchored for us beyond the veil, beyond the veil that is in heaven, where Jesus has entered as our forerunner, verse 20, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so here we have the, the fourth time or so in this book that there's this mention of Jesus as the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? What, does that, what is significant about this? That the author Hebrews would have choose to focus on this obscure reference in Genesis. We're in Genesis 14, you remember the story, we're going to see a little, little bit. Yeah, that's really a story about Abraham. But there's a little mention about this guy named Melchizedek. And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, the author of Hebrews reveals to us the, the significance of this Melchizedek. The author will now elaborate in this chapter, chapter 7, all the way to verse 28. You'll notice that I entitled this part 1 because next week, really, we should preach all 28 verses, but I decided to break it up into two parts. Next week will be part 2. Uh, so we'll take look, look at verses 1 through 10 today. And in this, these 10 verses, the author is going to elaborate how Jesus, as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, makes him a greater priest, a better priest than all the Levitical priests that the Hebrews were considering turning back to. And they were, and and uh, and so we'll look at the details about this Melchizedek Melchizedek priesthood that Jesus is an order of, and as a um, this answer will provide for us hope and encouragement for those of us that are asking how long, as long as he endures. He will be there for us, and he will give us hope. And so in our introduction today, we're going to look at two aspects of the Melchizedek, of Melchizedek, excuse me, that magnify the greatness of Christ as our high priest. Two aspects of Melchizedek that magnify the greatness of Christ as our high priest. So point number one, the aspect number one that we're going to look at is pretty much introductory. It's the character of Melchizedek. The author introduces us again to who Melchizedek is, uh, what was significant about him in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 7. Let's read verses 1 to 3 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the, like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And so 
Here we see the author describing for us the significance of this Melchizedek, that Jesus is a high priest of the order of. And in these three verses, he communicates to the read, or the author communicates to the readers all that is known about Melchizedek. And it's really not much. If you, uh, it's actually recorded for us in Scripture. Everything is based from Genesis chapter 14. If you've read that recently, uh, you would be familiar. But in case you don't, it's not one of the, it's not particularly, you know, it doesn't really stand out. There's so many other more well-known chapters in Genesis. But in Genesis 14, it's called the War of the Kings, or here it's <laughs> the Slaughter of the Kings is what it's called. But it is the War of the Kings, uh, often referred to. And... Uh, uh, there were a bunch of kings that rebelled against uh, the king of Elam, uh, Ketolaimer, and uh, but Ketolaimer said, uh, "No, you're not going to do that." He came and he just basically de- defeated all those rebellious kings, and he took people for spoils. And among the people he took for spoils was Lot, Abraham's nephew, if you recall, because Lot was having one of those cities was Sodom that was in rebellion, and Lot lived in Sodom near Sodom. And so Abraham took his fighting men, 318 of them, I believe, and he led his men to battle, and he led, and, and he fought against Kedalim and, and his forces, and Abraham succeeded and rescued Lot from their hands. And he brought not just Lot, but others that were taken captive, and he brought back spoils along the way as well, things that they, they had been taken away, that Kedalim had taken away. And so on his way back home, there's a significant interaction that Abraham has with two people, with two kings. One is the king of Sodom, and the other is the king of Salem. And there's a, there's a uh, we won't get into it, but there's a potential contrast even in that. And um, um, you can study Genesis 14. But let's read Genesis 14, 17 to 20. I'll read it for you. Uh, oh, good, I have it on here. Let's read the story of what happened. Then after his return... Uh, Abraham's return from the defeat of Keterlaimer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He, that is, uh, Melchizedek, blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him a tenth of all. And so that's the story. That's basically the story. And that's all what we learn about Melchizedek. That's written about 2000 BC. And the next time we'd hear about him would be about 1000 BC, when David writes about the Messiah being uh, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which we looked at last week. So a thousand years, and now a thousand years later, basically, in the New Testament era, the, we get Hebrews, which refers to him once more. So, when, But as we look at this story, a couple things stand out regarding Melchizedek, and it was brought out last week, but it's worth saying today. What stands out immediately regarding Melchizedek is that he is both a king and a priest. He's a, a priest king. And this was, of course, unusual to the Israelites because the kings and the priests in their history were always distinct from one another. They were, they were distinct because they, were, they would only, could only come from certain family lines. The kings were always descendants of the tribe of Judah, particularly David. And the priests, on the other hand, were descendants of Levi, particularly Aaron. 
In fact, even any time we see in the Old Testament where a king takes, tries to take on the role of a priest, that would be a, that would be a big no, for God would judge and discipline uh, the, that, the disobedient king. Usually it was Saul, as uh, the most well-known, uh, who did that. <clears throat> now Melchizedek, he lived in a time before there were Levitical priests at all, right? There weren't any Levitical priests. But and there, though, and while there were no Levitical priests, and somehow, in some way, we don't, we're not told how, but he is both a priest of God Most High, that is a priest of God, as well as a king, the king of this, this city called Salem. And the fact that he is a priest king, and the first time we read Genesis, he may not have stood out too much, but Psalm 110 makes for us, connects for us the significance of Melchizedek. That as Melchizedek is a priest and a king, we learn in Psalm 110 that Messiah would also be a priest and a king. Everybody expected Messiah. Messiah, Messiah it means anointed one. That whole terminology just means that he's a king, because they would always anoint the kings. And the surprise was that in verse 4 of Psalm 110, uh, God would say to him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And people probably scratched their heads. David wrote it, so he understood. But many other radium wouldn't have not pictured, understood why that was significant. But just like Melchizedek was a priest and a king, so the Messiah would be a priest and a king. Zechariah, in his uh, prophecy, in Zechariah 6.13, would prophesy the same thing regarding this Messiah. There he's called the branch. In Zechariah 6.13, we read this. It is, he, it is he, the Messiah, the branch, who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on the throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. You see that reference there? He's going to sit on his throne. That means he's going to be a king. Everybody expects Messiah to be king. But he will be a priest on his throne. A prophetic promise from God that the one who is the Messiah is going to be a priest as well while he sits on the throne. And these two offices of priest and king will, will come together in peace. Or, whereas for much of Israel, whenever a priest and king tried to take, come together, there would be death and judgment. All these characteristics of Melchizedek emphasize that he is both a priest and a king. He, would be a t- he becomes, eventually for us, a type of Christ. And, we, we, and as we see further on in verse 1 to 3, we learn that, that many, in several other ways, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's, he foreshadows Christ, is, what we all, uh, is another way of saying that. First of all, we, there's emphasis on his name, Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek uh, is, uh, means the king of righteousness. A person's name would reflect the character of an individual in those days. And Melchizedek, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was righteous, but probably because he was a priest of God Most High, he probably was a, a righteous guy, at least characterized by righteousness. But, uh, so, but he was not only the king of righteousness, but his, the fact that he was, his title was the king of Salem. That <clears throat> Salem is uh, just our English transliteration of really one could describe it as the king of shalom, if we think of our Hebrew word, the king of peace. Uh, by the way, Salem would be another name for the city of Jerusalem, 
In fact, that's what Jerusalem means. It means the city of peace. Yir Shalom uh, means city of peace, Jerusalem. And so this Melchizedek was not only would be characterized as a king of righteousness, but he would also be a king of peace. And as a type of Christ, as a foreshadowing of Christ, he in many ways would point to how Christ would be one who would have a king who would be characterized by righteousness and peace. This, and this would, be, this would fit the expectation of the Messiah. For remember Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, where Messiah is called, he's called the Prince of Peace. His government would have no end. It would be characterized by peace. It would be characterized by justice. It would be characterized by righteousness. All these things. And, and this is a, a tremendous thing because in our days, but especially in those days, you know, there was just, governments were, were not, were just, were, were just, just as corrupt because sinful men is there. And oftentimes they would fail in carrying out justice, fail in carrying out righteousness. In fact, sometimes some governments get to the place where they, they actually start punishing righteousness. But this Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, and a king who was characterized by righteousness and peace, and that would be a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And the Messiah, of course, would come, and he would be also a king of peace and righteousness. But not only that, this Messiah that would be foreshadowed or by Melchizedek would be also, according to verse 3, one who is a perpetual priest. This is, verse 3 is a difficult verse to interpret, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. <clears throat> the wording in verse 3 has led some scholars to debate the nature of Melchizedek, that somehow maybe he's a, some supernatural being, because he he's, uh, says here he's without doesn't have father, mother, and genealogy, doesn't need the beginning of days. And, it's, and so some have, some have concluded that he was an angel, or even... He was the pre-incarnate Christ. And, and, that is, and, that, and that's uh, understandable, especially if we take everything, the, the wording literally. But it doesn't, and as we look at that, it seems that this is more uh, of just a, a more of a, a, a kind of a, a way of describing what was what we, the absence of any mention of these things in Scripture. Because he is, the main reason why we don't think, I don't think it's the Son of God, he, it's a reference to the Son of God, is because the latter part of verse 3 says he is made like the Son of God. He is not made, he is the Son of God, which we would expect if, he, if, if that was the case. But nevertheless, Melchizedek here uh, stands out for this, that he is a perpetual priest because he, he has no genealogy. Melchizedek foreshadows Christ, and, uh, and he was both a priest, a king, and Jesus was both a priest and a king. 
Melchizedek was named a king of righteousness, and he was also a king of a place called peace, but Jesus would be a king who is righteousness and peace. He's called Jesus the righteous in uh, 1 John 2.1. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.14 that Jesus himself is our peace. So Jesus himself is the fulfillment, really, of what Melchizedek foreshadowed. In fact, without Christ's righteousness, none of us would know peace with God the Father. But lastly, that, the, this, this concept of Melchizedek having no recorded beginning or end basically foreshadows the eternal priesthood of Christ, that he is a priest forever. And we'll learn later in chapter 7 this uh, next week, but I'll we'll read it for you now. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the reason, then, that the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew believers, and, in fact, we also can turn away, uh, or are tempted to turn away from Christ, is because down somewhere along the way, we cease or we forget to believe that Jesus is able to help us. We, we think that, oh, he's forsaken us. He's forgotten us. So we're tempted then to, to turn back, I mean, to turn to something else. In fact, though, these... These uh, Hebrew Christians were tempted to turn back to the Levitical priesthood, and the and many of you know the church here, church history, that in a few short years, eighty by eighty seventy, the temple, along with all its sacrificial system and priests, would be demolished by Rome. Even to this day, there are no priests there, even if they had turned back from to the priest Levitical priesthood from Christ they would have been sorely disappointed in a few years as their whole system became destroyed. But nevertheless, we will find that Jesus remains in heaven as our high priest. That he is still there interceding at the right hand of God the Father for us. He is able according to Hebrews 7, to save us forever, those who draw near to him. Because he lives. He's alive, he's not on the cross. He's in heaven. He lives to make intercession, to intercede to, for you and me, to advocate for you and me. It's so important we're talking about, uh, sometimes I think about, I mean, this word advocate reminds me of medical care. And uh, so important as we have, as maybe some of us are, have parents that age, you know, maybe you're starting to take care of them, your older parents, they, they need you to be their advocate. They, you know, are, their minds are getting a little fuzzy, and they need us. It's so important to, to have that person there to advocate alongside. And, uh, and so how much more it is as we go through life, as we Become as we're in our frailty and we start growing old or weak and, and unable to face the trials of life, that we need an advocate 
in Christ, a perpetual priest who, exists, who sits at the right hand of God most high for you and me. One who will never leave you or forsake you. And so this is the character of Melchizedek that we, reminds us, encourages us to, uh, to continue to put our trust in him. There's a second aspect of Melchizedek that we find here in these verses, verse 4 to 10, that magnifies the greatness of Christ, and that is the superiority of Melchizedek. The superiority of particularly Melchizedek's priesthood, but Melchizedek's person as well. And we read in verse 4 through 10 this lengthy section, but it's pretty simple in its interpretation. Uh, thankfully, it's much easier than the first uh, three verses. We read this. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who then received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. The author now proceeds in this, this section, from this point on, all the way through the rest of the chapter, to give the reasons for why Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And here he does so through two actions that demonstrate the greatness of Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood. Two, two actions that took place in this exchange between Abraham and, uh, and Melchizedek that demonstrate the greatness of Melchizedek over the priests of Levi. First is through this act of tithing. Uh, in the story, at the end of, of, uh, of the story that we read in Genesis 14, at the end, Abraham does something that's, that, uh, that stands out. He, he gave a, a tenth, a tithe, a tenth, a tenth percentage of all what he had gained back from his, his wars, and he gave it to Melchizedek. He gave it to us as an offering. And that's unusual because it was not, that's something that's not commanded, but it stands out. And you kind of wonder why, because think about it. In Genesis 14, this is, the, this is about Abraham, really. It's a, he is the main character in this whole story, uh, besides God himself. But this is the patriarch. This is the father of Israel. This is the, this is the hero in the story, Abraham is. He's the one who delivered from Lot from the kings. He's just like, boy, uh, He's just like these Israeli commandos, you know, that are sometimes sent out, sent out into the world to do, the, you know, their their deeds. And he's a he's an amazing fighter. He's, he's he rescues Lot and brings them back. This one gave a tithe, an offering, a sacrifice to Melchizedek. Now. For most of the everyday Israelites, when they hear tithe, they knew that this was something that was taught to them by the law. That they gave, they too gave a tithe to their priests, but that was because the law commanded it. They were to support the Levitical priests because these priests who didn't have an inheritance in the land, 
uh, their inheritance would be the Lord, but they would act as mediators between God and Israel. And so the people were commanded to give a tithe to support the Levitical priests. These were those who were descended from Abraham. They were through Abraham, eventually through through Judah or through Levi, uh, <clears throat> to uh, these priests and the Aaron and these priests. And they were received. A, a, this was a something that was commanded to them. But Melchizedek, when he received a tithe from Abraham, when Abraham gave it to Abraham, gave it not by command of God, but by a free will response. It's so profound because that's exactly how you and I give today. We give by free will. Not because we have to, but freely we give out of thankful love and appreciation for what God has done. And, that's, and that stands out for these, <clears throat> for, and for these Jewish Christians who had come out of Old Testament background. They, the law was everything. And yet here Abraham gave a tithe apart from the law. The great Abraham responded in giving to Melchizedek. And he did so because of what we read back in Genesis 14. It's because Melchizedek, in his blessing of Abraham, reminded Abraham that this priest of God says, blessed are Abraham of God Most High. He says, your God is God Most High. And and he was a priest of God Most High. And he reminded him that it is God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Remember, the, the blessing that you have, what has taken place, is because God Most High was on your side. So in thankful worship, Abraham then gave his tithe to Melchizedek as an act of worship and reverence, recognizing that God delivered him. For Abraham to give Melchizedek in this way emphasizes, in a sense, by giving to Melchizedek, who is the priest of God Most High, he recognized the greater the greater a rank of Melchizedek, even over Abraham, the father of Israel. And if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, the father of Israel, then he is certainly far greater than any descendants of Abraham, including the Levitical priests. Because, as the story tells a little bit later, they gave a, it is, these Levitical priests, in a sense, gave a tithe to Melchizedek whilst through Abraham while still in his loins. So through the act of tithing, we see that Abraham recognized that Melchizedek was greater. But the second act that takes place in, this, in the story that's, re- that's made reference, and that is the greatness of Melchizedek is seen in the act of blessing. While Abraham gave to Melchizedek, it is Melchizedek who blesses Abraham. And we learn here that as a rule, it is the lesser is blessed by the greater. It's always the greater who is blessing others. It's, it's God who blesses us. It's you as a parent, you're, you bless your children. Yes, there's some sense where they are, children are a blessing of the Lord, and, I, and we understand that. But it is you as you, as you give and as you provide for, for, for your children or those who depend upon you, you're blessing them because you have, the, you have the means, you have the capability, and God is one who has the greatest means and the greatest capability to provide what is needed by those whom he created. So Melchizedek then is portrayed as the greater person, even compared with Abraham, because Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham. And again, since Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then Melchizedek is also greater than Levi, who came from Abraham. 
Considering this then, that Melchizedek is greater than Levi, and remembering that Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Christ, Christ therefore is greater because he's of the order of Melchizedek. He's greater than the, those priests who would come from the order of Levi. Yes, we, we've already looked at why he's, how he can be a priest who is not of the order of, not a descendant of Levi, because he was selected by God himself, because he is God's son, and he had promised of him, and that's where we saw the quote of Psalm 110. Christ alone is our greater high priest. He's not only our king, whom we, whom we worship, whom we follow, whom we serve, He's our king who gives us the blessings, blessings of, of, out of, of his righteousness and his peace. But he's also our priest. And we're gonna, that's going to be fleshed out even more in the chapter to come and how he ultimately is the access the mediator between us and God, bringing us to salvation through his death on the cross. The peace that Christ gives is, is not a temporary peace. It may seem in the midst of trials that that peace is not there. But that peace really, we, we, we don't ha- it's not because of Christ's fault. We don't have peace because there's something in our own hearts. It, it reflects something in our own hearts where we are not trusting in Christ. But Christ, if we understand the scriptures, especially if we understand this, that he's the, the order of Melchizedek, He's greater than even the Levitical priests. He's greater than those whom, as far as Israel was concerned, was their primary mediator, primary means of, of salvation to them. Of Through them, they would access God. But Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he once and for all becomes the sole and only necessary mediator between us and God. And where all the Levitical priests would live and die, and a past priest who would pass on to the next. Christ, being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, is a priest forever. His priesthood is perpetual, and he would be able to save forever, unlike the Levitical priests. And for this reason, we can hold on to Jesus, hold on to him, and we can have a hope that is sure and steadfast, Because every time we think about where our anchor is, our anchor of hope is in heaven, where Christ has gone before us. We can hold on to Jesus. And so when we face our trials, especially when it gets to those times where it's just, it seems like it's never going to end, and it perhaps it may never end in this life even. For death is that final trial that all of us will face, that there will be no end to, at least until we die and enter into glory. But we can still remember the greatness of our priest king. We can respond as David does, as we be- just as we began in Psalm 13. We can end with Psalm 13. For what does David respond at the end of Psalm 13, verse 5 and 6? Though he asks how long, he remembers who is, he- who is his great God. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope this encourages you. It's, it is um, uh, some deep theological truths, but there's a practical uh, relevance of these, pra- ele- these theological truths for us.
Because Jesus, not just, it's just not that he's order of Melchizedek. It means because he's a priest forever. And he's always going to intercede. He's going to never forsake us. He's never going to uh, abandon us. Well, let me leave you with uh, just questions for your uh, discussion in your small groups or maybe in your families around the table this evening. Uh, how does your understanding of Melchizedek encourage you in your faith? We talked about different aspects. What aspect of maybe you picked up a Melchizedek encouraged you in your faith today? Uh, same question, when you face trials, how can knowing Christ's perpetual priesthood help you endure? And then thirdly, not really a question, but something to meditate upon. Think about the things that you may turn away from Christ to. You know, whatever you may be tempted to turn to. And, how, and consider how they compare in light of the greatness of Christ. And hopefully that will help you when the time does come and you're tempted to fall away and towards turn away from Christ to those things that you'll remember that Christ is greater. Christ is greater. Let's, uh, so I want to invite the worship team to come back up to and let me uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for a uh, time of worship in your word. Uh, thank you for these difficult to understand truths. But yet, Lord... It's not because of your word is at fault. It's really because uh, we are dull of hearing at times. Uh, but Lord, as much as we can grasp these truths, encourage our hearts, especially encourage those saints among us who are, are going through trials, where they are asking you, Lord, how long must they endure? And it may seem hard for them, Lord, I know. And I pray that they would remember the great, the great high priest that they have, a high priest that is not like the Levitical priest, but a high priest that is like the priesthood of Melchizedek, one who is a priest perpetually, forever. And we thank you, Lord, for the, our high priest who sits at your right hand. And not only is he our high priest, but he's our king. And Lord, thank you that he who sits upon the throne continues to be the source of our hope, throughout all of life, but even even in death. Lord, we praise you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.